Okay, well, let's, let's begin. Let me pray. Father, I pray in your grace, God, that you would just help us now as we open your word. God, I pray that we'd find riches and treasures here as we look to an Old Testament prophet. Um, God, I pray that we might see of how years ago he was, was prophesied uh, that the son would be given to us. The government resting upon his shoulders, King Jesus. And so, God, I pray you would, would help now, Father, for all of us to just embrace, God, what I said, help me, God, by your spirit, may, may come and illumine and, and encourage our hearts, God, through this word of an ancient text uh, written more than 2,000 years ago. Uh, may it still find encouragement in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, if you were here last week, you, you know that uh, during this Christmas season, I'm trying to highlight uh, Handel's Messiah. It's a musical piece written by George Frederick Handel, 1741. And uh, uh, his Messiah is really, it's, a, it's an oratorio, uh, which means a text sent, set to music. And uh, in this case, the text is just a bunch of, of scripture passages um, all around the theme, and the, the theme is... Messiah. If you remember, Handel wasn't the one that uh, came up with the text. It was there was friend uh, Charles Jennings, and maybe you remember the story that Jennings was studying about the Messiah and the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and uh, um, he, he wrote up these verses. He sent them to Handel with request and hope that that he would put them to music. And, and I read this quote last week. I'll read it again because it sets up the context of something I want to tell you. It says, I hope Handel will lay out his whole genius and skill upon it, that the composition may excel all his former compositions as the subject excels every other subject. The subject is Messiah. Now, what I didn't tell you last week was that the Jennings didn't like the work that Handel produced. So he was disappointed. And and after hearing the piece of the Messiah, he, he wrote to a friend. He said, uh, Handel has made fine entertainment of it, though not near so good as he might and ought to have done. So maybe as you see these clips played, I'm not sure we quite would call them entertainment, but that was entertainment back then. And uh, then he interacted with, with Handel. He says, I have with great difficulty made him correct some of the grossest faults in the composition, but he retained his overture up." in which there were some passages far unworthy of Handel, but much more unworthy of the Messiah. In other words, Handel's done some good work, but, but this one didn't exceed them all like he was hoping, and uh, even though the, the subject was. But whatever Charles Jennings wanted, like I have no idea what he wanted, because the, the testimony and the overwhelming consensus of, of history has been that Handel's Messiah has been amazing masterpiece. That's why it continues to be played today, some 250 years later. Now, I myself, I'm not so into classical music. The, the style, I, I, don't, I don't very much listen to that, though I, I somewhat appreciate it a little bit. But, but I think it's a good piece. I, I think it's uh, worthy of being listened to today. Um, and what I appreciate about the Messiah is it draws our attention to the Lord, because it just draws our attention to the scripture passages kind of again and again over um, and again, and I would hope that this message series would, would prompt you to just say, you know, I need to know more about that Handel's Messiah thing. Well, another thing I didn't tell you last week about Messiah was that it wasn't written for Christmas. 
In fact, it was written for Easter um, when they celebrate. In fact, the first performance was, was in the Easter season. Uh, but uh, it doesn't just tell the story of the resurrection. It tells the, the whole story leading up to the resurrection. Where does the resurrection start? But in a manger. And so it tells the whole Christmas story, the birth of Christ. And then it takes us through the, the life and death of Christ up to his, uh, his resurrection and ascension. So the Messiah really has three parts. If you can look there on the, on the overhead that SR did. Part one contains just the, the, the prophecies of the Messiah... And it ends with the story of the shepherds coming to see the baby born in Bethlehem, which, by the way, we're going to look at next week, the story in Luke chapter 2 and, and tie it together with uh, in musical pieces. That, that's part one, is, is prophecies and then birth. And, and part two deals with the suffering of Jesus, ending with the great alleluia, the triumph of what was conquered on the cross. And the third part is the resurrection and Christ's glories in heaven. But it, it's because the first part deals with with Christmas and leading up to the life of Christ, it's why Messiah is often played at Christmas time. Is because these first um, these first pieces, these first movements, whatever, whatever they're called, are um, focused upon the the Christmas story. And uh, so I'm going to try to do what I did last week and just kind of preach, expose some text, and then and then bring up. We got four short videos we're going to look at today. But last week we looked at Isaiah 40. It began with comfort, O oh, comfort, my people, says your God, that your iniquity has been pardoned. And then it, it prophesied of the forerunner of Jesus. And then it climaxed with a prophecy concerning the, the coming of the Lord and that we're, up to, we're to proclaim and herald, behold, your God. Well, this morning we're going to focus our attention upon Isaiah 9. So if you haven't done so, take your Bibles, open them to Isaiah chapter 9, page 573 of your Pew Bible, if you're, you're there, we're going to look at the first seven verses of Isaiah 9. And this, this is an Old Testament prophecy of the coming of Jesus. There might be some words here that are familiar. Um, there are some that are quoted in the New Testament, so you might have some familiarity there. I think verse 6, maybe you can hear Handel's Messiah as we read through that. But here's what Isaiah writes. It says, For there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And these are words of prophecy to the nation Israel of what God is going to do with them and for them. And fundamentally, they are our words of hope I have four points this morning. First comes from verse 1. There will be 
no gloom. So we see Isaiah 9, verse 1. There will be no gloom. There we go. We got it. In fact, that's what verse 1 says, right? There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, if you're in anguish and you hear there's going to be no gloom, what is that? It's like, like good news, right? right? You're, you're suffering and going through hard times. There's nothing better than you can hear than a promise from God that there will be no gloom. First really comes on the heels of, of chapter 8. You know, the chapter division here is... Uh, is, is hard. In fact, some, the Hebrew manuscript puts it in chapter 8, this first verse. So let's look back. Just even the last two verses of chapter 8, it's talking about those who turned away from the Lord. It says, They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. You, you see there that God is going to deal with these people who are disobedient. He's going, to, he's going to throw them into distress and darkness, thrusting them into deep darkness. Now, of course, that, that's not talking about the, the sky coming out, the, the sun coming from the sky and being literal. But it just talks about a depression. It talks about a hardship. It talks about economic pressures. It talks about um, disasters coming. And God is going to throw them into thick darkness because of their their disobedience. And yet the message here, verse one, is that the promise of hope, there's going to be no gloom. And that is, of course, isn't that the message of Christmas? No gloom. I mean, the, the, the cheer of Christmas, right? That God brought cheer into the world. This is what we sing. We sang today, right? Joy to the world. The Lord is come, which, by the way, Handel wrote the music for that. I was noticing, didn't notice that until today. But it's joy to the world, right? We sing, good Christian men rejoice because of Christmas time. O come, O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. I mean, he, he, here it is that, that we in Christmas time, we understand that it's a time of, of joy. The message the angels brought to the shepherds. Behold, I bring you what? Good news of great joy. It'll be for all the people. For unto you to this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Of course, the angels are, are talking about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who came to save his people from their sins. That, that's what Christmas is about. It's, it's about a promise of, of no gloom. You know, it's helpful here to note that Israel is, is speaking to the land, particularly in Israel, to the land that Jesus walked. Look at verse 1, how he mentions, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are, are, are portions of a land, a, a portion to the tribes of Israel up in the north, in the Sea of Galilee sort of area, where, where Jesus ministered, northern Israel. And during the days of, of Isaiah, this place was a wreck because Assyria had come in and conquered Israel. So picture these places like in ruins after a war. Is where these places are. They, they were, were in ruins. And anyone who was left wasn't even seeking the Lord. It was, there's plenty of gloom to go around. But the promise comes in verse 1. There will be no gloom. The promise gave Israel hope. And, and then he further clarifies of how it is that, that there will be no gloom. Look at verse 2. This is my second point. They will, they will see a great light. Not only will there be no gloom, they'll see a great light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in a land of deepness, on them the light is shown. So we get to point two there, Nathan. 
So there we go. The second point, they will see a great light is right where we are. Uh, the picture is those lost in darkness, wandering about w- w- without direction, not knowing where it is they're going, no guidance. And then the, the light comes, they begin to see their way safely and with security. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew takes verses 1 and 2 and ascribes this then to Jesus. Matthew four twelve and following, Jesus withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And the reason why Jesus did his ministry up there and in the Sea of Galilee, Matthew says, Matthew 4.14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. So you got this. This is a fulfillment of Jesus. Is right here in, in verse 2. And, and by the way, just talking about this motif about, about lights, right? The, uh, the people walking in darkness, seeing a great light. That's why we celebrate Christmas with lights. We don't celebrate Easter with lights. We don't celebrate Thanksgiving with lights. But it's, it's Christmas time with lights because that symbolizes it. It denotes Jesus coming in the world. That's why we light candles. That's why we light Christmas trees. That's why we light our homes with lights because Jesus is the light. And he knew he was the light. He said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And during, the, during his ministry, financing the very last week of his ministry, he got in a public place and he cried out to the people. John 12, 46. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So this darkness clouds over. You want, you want to see the light? You want to get out of the light? Then believe and trust in Jesus. That's the light. It's the light. That's the message of Christmas. And, and today it's interesting. So much has been clouded around with so much materialism and this and that they, they miss they miss jesus in fact i went to a, a play the other day a couple of weeks ago by a, a christian group and putting on the play elf so what's christmas about well it's about happiness and cheer it's not about happiness and cheer it's about jesus who is the light who came into the world that whoever believes in him will not remain in darkness and here's the light that shines in the world. This is the message that we need to tell our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and our family that, that Jesus is the light and believe and trust in him. See, when you're lost, isn't light a welcome sight? I mean, I think about the ship that's lost its way. It's glad to see the light in the lighthouse on the shore. And the lost hiker in the woods is glad to see the lights of the town. I remember going on a hike one time with some friends of mine. We got deep in the woods and we were lost. But it was good when we finally found the road and we finally found where we were. There, there's, there's joy and rejoicing in there. So also, those who walk in darkness or their sin ought to be glad to see the Savior. But sadly, many still choose to walk in darkness. They've heard of Jesus. They've, they've, they've seen His works. They've... They've seen other people, seen what he's done in this world, and yet they continue to turn away. And Jesus said this, John three nineteen, This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their works are evil. So they love their darkness rather than loving the light. 
It's interesting. Right? You're, you're in your darkness, and they, they prefer to, to walk around and bump into each other and, and uh, get away from that light rather than coming into the light. You know, this is illustrated nicely in a book written by R.C. Sproul called The Lightlings. Have you read The Lightlings before? It's a, it's a children's book. It's a, it's a great book. And I just think about R.C. Sproul passed away this week, age 78, founder and chairman of Ligonier Ministries, a, a teaching ministry, had a great effect upon, upon, I'm not sure if many of our lives, but had a great effect upon my life. I, I talked to my dad this week, and he said, uh, I, I caught him in the morning, was helping him with some technical things, and he said, uh, yeah, I'm just about to uh, do my morning routine and just reads the Table Talk magazine every day. He's done this for decades now. Uh, just R.C. Sproul and his books have been, been helpful. His best trait was that he brought theology to the layman. He had a way of, of communicating profound truth in, a, in an easy-to-understand way. But anyway, he wrote a children's book. He wrote a couple children's books, but one of them is called The Lightlings, which illustrated the story about Jesus being light of the world. It begins with a little child named Charlie who uh, is scared of the dark. And when when he's going to to bed at night, he, he talks to his mom. And he says, Mom, can you make sure that you remember to turn on the night light before you go to bed? And his, his mom said, don't worry, son. I'll be sure to turn on the light. I won't leave you in the dark. And he's just, just wrestling, this little boy Charlie is, with being scared of the dark. And so he talked with Grandpa the next day who came for dinner. And Charlie sat on Grandpa's knee and says, Grandpa, why am I so afraid of the dark? Why are so many people that I know afraid of the dark? And Grandpa replied, well, lots of people are afraid of the dark, but many people are afraid of the light. And Charlie was kind of confused about that, and so he asked him, he said, well, what does that mean? And so Grandpa told him a story. That's what this lightning story is about. He tells about a great king who's actually the king of light, and this great king of light created a group of people who ought to shine his light. He called them the lightlings. And for a while, the lightlings loved the great king, and they loved to be in his presence. Until one day, when the lightnings decided that they didn't like the ways of the great king, and they went their own way, they rebelled against the king. And in their rebellion, their lights grew dim, and they ran away from the king. And they went deep into the forest, and they were afraid because they disobeyed the, the king of light that, that they would be ashamed because they have, have turned away from him and, and disobeyed him. And so they went deeper and deeper into the forest where it was dark. And as they, they went deep into the dark forest, their light continued to grow dim and dim and dim until eventually they were living in utter black darkness. And then, and then one night, or maybe it was day, you don't really know, far off in a distance they saw a blinding light through the trees. And the many lightnings ran from the light, going deeper and deeper into the forest. But some of the lightning children were curious about the light. And so they, they traveled towards the light. And it turned out to be many miles until they, they reached that light. And finally, they, they came to a clearing in which they saw the source of this light. There was a, a father lightling and a mother lightling and a little baby lightling that was shining like the sun. And then the father lightning explained this to the children. He says... He is not my son. He is the son of the king of light. The king has given him to us as a special gift. And there'll be no darkness strong enough to hide this light. And no darkness deep enough to send this light away. And when they heard this, the, the lightling children fell down at his feet, this baby's feet, and in fear worshipped this little baby. 
And when they rose, they found that their faces were shining once again. Because their faces were really a reflection off of the light coming out of the baby. And, and so they returned back home and to tell of the other lightnings of what, what had happened. And when the, they arrived, the other lightnings were, were afraid because these, these kids, their faces were, were glowing and they're, they're frightened. They said, what happened to you? And they said, we saw a baby that was shining with light. He is the son of the king of light. And he has given us his own son to be light of the world. And the lightlings noticed that there was already like a little more of a glow in the forest, that, that the, the light from this baby had reached them and was kind of making the forest a little lighter. And now they could see where they're going. They, they didn't have to run around and bump into each other and have bruises and bump and trip and fall on trees and rocks. But some hated the light and still went deeper into the forest, while others realized that they didn't need to be afraid anymore. And they understood that to walk in the light is much better than to live in the darkness that they were used to. And so here's what Grandpa said to Charlie. He said, You see, Charlie, we're afraid of the dark because we were made to live in the light. And someday all of us who love this son will live with him forever in heaven. And there there'll be no moon, no stars, not even a sun. There'll be no night lights, no lamps, no lanterns, not even candles. And Charlie was confused. He said, How can this be? And Grandpa replied, when the place where the king's son now lives, the light that shines forever still comes from inside of him. And all who come into his presence will never be in darkness again. So remember the story of the child that the king of light brought into the darkness of this world. And remember that he gave us this baby as a present. And Charlie, as long as you remember that, you will never, ever, ever have to be afraid of the dark again. It's R.C. Sproul's story about the, the lightlings, the light. We don't need to be afraid of the light. The light has come to rescue us from the darkness. And that's what verse 2 is teaching us. They will see a great light. See how they respond. Well, Handel put verse 2 to music. And so I want to just play like we did last, last time. Hopefully the, the sound will be good here. I want to play um, our first clip here. If we can get that, Nathan. Isaiah 9 2. in darkness on them the light 
shineth. And they will see a light. My third point here, they will rejoice greatly. That's what verses 3 through 5 are talking about, how they will rejoice greatly. Let's, let's read them. You have multiplied the nation, and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, these words maybe aren't so familiar. We know verse 6, verses 1 and 2 are quoted in the New Testament. But these words here speak about how just the the people are going to rejoice greatly. And, And the increase in joy comes because the light has come. We see the reasons in verses 4 and 5 because they're free from their oppressor and they've experienced peace. And these verses really an expansion of the promise of verse 1 that there'll be no gloom, right? Verse 1, there'll be no gloom. The light's going to come. And let me show you how they're going to be filled with joy, right? Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Notice that, that God is the one who gives the joy. These words are addressed to God. You, O oh God, have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. See, it, it's interesting, even um, Darren alluded to this in his reading his devotional, that here it is, the Christmas season, this joyous season is oftentimes filled with sadness and depression. As much as it intends to be, right, there's this great elation of, of excitement and encouragement. There's, there are parties to be had, and there's lots of food to go around. And yet, many people with all these outward festivities fail to feel the joy in the heart. And many times, I think like verse 3 speaks about it, it comes down to this. They're looking for joy in the wrong places. They're, they're looking for joy in the food, in the festivities, in the celebration. But joy doesn't come From the presence we receive, it doesn't come from the parties that we celebrate. Joy comes from the Lord, and joy is is in the Lord. And that's what verse 3 says, that God is the one who's increased the joy. I'm thankful that we have a joy-giving God. Well, the prophecy then in verse 4 focuses upon deliverance. This is why they've increased their joy, because basically God has has rescued them, which is a, a picture of what God does in our salvation in Christ. But here... Isaiah is referring back to the, the days of Midian, the oppression by Midian. You can see the, the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You've broken as on the day of Midian. So this, this burden has been broken. This staff and this rod, they've been broken, they've been shattered. There's been a, a freedom that has come as on the day of Midian. So if you know your Bible history really well, you think Midian, okay, that's Judges 6 and 7. And that's, that's Gideon is who we're, we're talking about. And uh, during those days, the people of Israel, there was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they were oppressed. The Lord gave them over to the hand of Midian for seven years. So this is like the cycle of the judges, right? The people disobey, and it says here that God gave them over. You want to disobey? Okay, here you go. The hand of the Midianites. And the oppression was bad. They, They were forced to live up in the mountains, in the caves, in the strongholds. They couldn't live down in the plains, in the nice places. And, and whenever they planted their crops, the Midianites would come and take the crops for themselves. They, they took the harvest. So they, they had to live far away. Whatever food they could get were, were taken away by the, the Midianites. Difficult time for Israel. But God raised up a judge 
named Gideon, who, who led Israel in victory over the Midianites and then led to 40 years of peace. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 4 and 5. Just the, this, this burden is no longer there. This yoke of these Midianites coming, it's no longer there. But instead, there's peace, which leads to joy. And that's the picture that we see when Messiah comes. Verse 5 is a picture of peace. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. They don't, they don't need um, their clothes of war anymore. They, they don't need their boots. And, and the garments have been stained from, in blood in battle. They, they don't need that anymore. And so they just kind of throw it in the fire. It can be just fuel for the fire. Burn it up. It's a symbol there of peace. And this is my third point says that they will they'll rejoice greatly because they're delivered and because they know peace. You know, and seeing this prophecy, then think about the, the life of the disciples. It's no wonder then that they expected the deliverance to Israel, the deliverance Jesus would come and overthrow Rome, rather. Now, you remember when the disciples were on the road to Emmaus and the despondent disciples were, were talking, they talked to Jesus, they didn't know he was Jesus there, but when Jesus was buried, they lost hope and they said that we were hoping that it was he who was going to be the one who's going to redeem Israel. In other words, we were hoping that he was the one to take us off of this Roman oppression and this Roman dominance of us, because the Israelites felt like this is exactly, we're walking in darkness. It has been difficult for us. There is gloom because the, the Romans are over us. We need to pay taxes to them, and they need to tell us everything that we can do. We need to seek permission from them. And just an oppressive sort of situation, and, and they didn't like it. But they thought this light was going to come, and they, they thought the light was there. And they thought, verse 3, 4, and 5 are going to come in, that, that Jesus is going to come and, and deliver them. And, and it's no wonder, right? And it's not they got the prophecy wrong. They just missed the, the timing a little bit. They missed the way that the Messiah would bring peace. In fact, on the road to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus then says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer first and then to enter into his glory? And what he's saying is these verses 3, 4, and 5 await a future fulfillment Right, but the kingdom doesn't come through the sword. The kingdom comes through the cross. And Christmas is really the, the beginning of that road as the light would come and then lead on into the future. And this naturally leads us into verse 6, which speaks directly about Christmas. talks about a, a child. Look at verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And the prophecy here is his coming prince. The son is going to come to rule and reign. And the prophecy here is of everlasting peace and everlasting prosperity, which is beyond what Midian was. Midian was only for 40 years. But this peace and prosperity is going to go on forever, everlasting, like continuing on, on forever. Now, this was fulfilled, the birth of Jesus, when the son was given, right, with Mary when she gave birth and her firstborn son in that stable in Bethlehem and laid him in a manger. And in fact, that's what Isaiah 7 verse 14 refers back to the same time. You just turn back just a, a few pages. 
Look there at Isaiah 7, 14. It's prophesying of a, of a child to be born. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Handel put this little verse to music as well. So if we can play the second clip there, Nathan, that would be, that'd be great. This is really short. In fact, it's through the whole thing. And this one, I didn't have to cut at all. It's all of 30 seconds. Isaiah 7.14, God with us. And the baby of 7.14 is the same baby that's born here in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Do you notice how the baby here in, in chapter 9, verse 6 is a, uh, is a gift? It looks, it says, uh, a child is born to us, a son is given. This is God's gift to Israel. It's God's gift to us. It echoes John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he what? He gave his son. That's right. He gave his only begotten son. He, he gave it. This son is a gift to us. All children are gifts. But this one in a special way. This one, gift of a, a redeemer. And God gave this son to be king. And on his shoulders, the government would rest. We see four descriptions of this child. Each of them is worthy of a sermon. His name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's the Wonderful Counselor. Now, some might separate this into his name is Wonderful and his, his name is Counselor. So maybe the five or put them together as most translations do today. He's the Wonderful Counselor in whom all wisdom resides. If we need help, if we need wisdom, we need guidance, we can go to him. If we have struggles and sorrows and pains in our lives... He will guide us. Peter tells us that, that God wants us to cast our burdens and anxieties on Him because He cares for us. He's our counselor to go to, this baby being born. He is, secondly, He's the mighty God. That is God in the flesh. Here's a baby born who is called mighty God. That's Emmanuel of Isaiah seven fourteen. God with us. When, when Jesus walked the earth, it was clear He was a man. Because two arms, two legs, face, nose, everything... But it was clear that he was something more than a man because he could do what no mere mortal could do. As he healed, as he taught with authority, and for eternity it's going to be clear that Jesus Christ was no mere human being. He was mighty God. He's also the everlasting Father. Now, Jesus isn't the everlasting Father in the Trinity. He's the everlasting Son in the Trinity. But regarding his rule and reign, he's the one that reigns and rules with a, a fatherly kingship. He doesn't rule as this, this potentate. He, he, he rules as a caring, loving, concerning, fatherly king. His rule is everlasting. He's also the prince of peace. It's explained in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Of his increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. In other words, right? his government will increase and his peace will increase for all eternity. It will be a peaceful government, and it will grow in peace. It will be more peaceful today than it was yesterday. It will be more peaceful tomorrow than it was today, throughout eternity. 
of his increase, of his government, his peace, there will be no end. And verse 7 describes further his his government. Jesus sits on the, the throne of David. His throne will be an eternal rule of justice and righteousness. You know, if there's any one common characteristic that, that characterizes all governments for all times, I, I think it's this, is they all fail. Because they all are human. They all ultimately fail. There's corruption someplace. There is inequity someplace. There is somehow they don't maintain the balance of power, the agreement of the people, and they, they fail. But not so with the kingdom of Christ. His kingdom will never fail. It will always be pure. It will always be just. Always be righteous forever. And you simply can't describe a better government than that in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. It's just always going to be. That's the, the King Jesus, this baby who was born. That's why they thought... Jesus the Messiah was going to come and rule and reign then and there. But this is a coming reign. This is in the future that we're waiting for. And lest you doubt, we have the word that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, Isaiah 9, 6, Handel put to music in the the Messiah. So we can see if we can get this one to go. Isaiah 9, 6. And this is one of the most famous ones that uh, you all might know. Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Well, I want to refer, as we we close here this morning, to one last text to wrap things up. Isaiah chapter 60. You can take and you can move forward there. These were a couple other songs that uh, Messiah did, that Handel did. We're just going to play one of them because it really gives us an application to Isaiah chapter 9 because the the theme is the same. The the theme is the, the darkness and I need to fix my fonts there, but this my my last point here. Uh, we're getting to it. Um, well, it is. It's not my last point. So, um, but here the theme is the same about the darkness coming into the light. And look what verse sixty says. But it gives application: Arise, shine. 
for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Here's the exhortation. Here's the exhortation to you really this, this Christmas time, right? This, this light has shined upon us and, it, and it's been good, but it is not something that we should merely keep to ourselves. As, as verse 60, chapter 60, verse 1 says, we should arise and we should shine. We should be like those lightlings who see the, the, the glory of Jesus. They come on our face and that we shine it forth. And so I encourage you this, this Christmas season, right, just, just to let Jesus shine. Right? Think, think ways of, of transition when you think about Christmas time. How, how you can transition to focus people upon, upon Jesus, um, rather than upon the the worldly festivities going on, right? May, are you ready for Christmas? How many of you have been asked that? Well, are you ready for Christmas yet? Are you ready for Christmas? Lots of like, what do they mean? Like, have you you know have you pack? You can just say yeah, or or you can try to subtly make make a point. Are you ready for Jesus? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to celebrating the birth of Christ. Right? We and our family have been reading through a devotional. Yes, we're 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 ready for the. The day when that celebration comes. Yes, we are looking forward. Christmas Eve. What a great time. The Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. We can worship that day. And Christmas. You want to come? I invite you to come. Five o'clock. Rock Valley Bible Church. Come to our, our Christmas Eve service. Just think through ways that you can shine forth Jesus. Isaiah 60 verse 1. Handel also wrote uh, songs for 2 and 3. We go over them. But for the sake of time, we're just going to look at. pray at Rock Valley Bible Church that we would be those who would arise and shine for the light has come. We thank you for the light, Jesus Christ, who has come. So we don't need to walk in darkness anymore. God, but we can see our sin and we can confess our sin. God, and we can know that our sins are forgiven in him, the baby who was born in the, the manger in Bethlehem. So, Father, I would pray that even this week, give us opportunities to, to shine forth this light. God, to rejoice in the Son that was was born, that was given to us. And I pray that we might realize everything that He is, the wonderful Counselor, mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Oh God, help us and strengthen us, encourage us, God, through these words written so long ago, and uh, this music 
written so long ago. God, stir our hearts this Christmas season to, to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.